Chapter 19 of The Girl in the Golden Atom by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The City of Arite. The City of Arite, as it looked to them now, was strange beyond anything they had ever seen, but still by no means as extraordinary as they had expected it would be. The streets through which they walked were broad and straight and were crossed by others at regular intervals of two or three hundred feet. These streets paralleled each other with mathematical regularity. The city thus was laid out most orderly, but with one peculiarity. The streets did not run in two directions, crossing each other at right angles, but in three, each inclined to an equal degree with the others. The blocks of houses between them, therefore, were cut into diamond-shaped sections and into triangles, never into squares or oblongs. Most of the streets seemed paved with large, flat, gray blocks of a substance resembling highly polished stone or a form of opaque glass. There were no sidewalks, but close up before the more pretentious of the houses were small trees growing. The houses themselves were generally triangular or diamond-shaped, following the slope of the streets. They were, most of them, but two stories in height, with flat roofs, on some of which flowers and trellised vines were growing. They were built principally of the same smooth gray blocks with which the streets were paved. Their windows were large and numerous, without window panes, but closed now nearly all of them by shining silvery curtains that looked as though they might have been woven from the metal itself. The doors were of heavy metal, suggesting brass or gold. On some of the houses, tiny low-railed balconies hung from the upper windows out over the street. The party proceeded quietly through this now deserted city, crossing a large tree-lined square or park that by the confluence of many streets seemed to mark its center and turned finally into another diagonal street that dropped swiftly down towards the lakefront. At the edge of a promontory, this street abruptly terminated in a broad flight of steps leading down to a little beach on the lake shore perhaps a hundred feet below. The chemist turned sharp to the right at the head of these steps and, passing through the open gateway of an arch in a low gray wall, led his friends into a garden in which were growing a profusion of flowers. These flowers, they noticed, were most of them blue or gray, or of a pale silvery whiteness, lending to the scene a peculiarly wan, wistful appearance, yet one of extraordinary, quiet, unearthly beauty. Through the garden, a little gray pebbled path wound back to where a house stood, nearly hidden in a grove of trees upon a bluff directly overlooking the lake. "'My home, gentlemen,' said the chemist, with a wave of his hand. As they approached the house they heard coming from within the mellow voice of a woman singing, an odd little minor theme with a quaint lilting rhythm and words they could not distinguish. Accompanying the voice were the delicate tones of some stringed instrument suggesting a harp. We are expected, remarked the chemist with a smile, 
Lilda is still up, waiting for us. The very young man's heart gave a leap at the mention of the name. From the outside, the chemist's house resembled many of the larger ones they had seen as they came through the city. It was considerably more pretentious than any they had yet noticed, diamond-shaped, that is to say, a flattened oblong, two stories in height and built of large blocks of the gray polished stone. Unlike the other houses, its sides were not bare, but were partly covered by a luxuriant growth of vines and trellised flowers. There were no balconies under its windows, except on the lakeside. There, at the height of the second story, a covered balcony broad enough almost to be called a veranda stretched the full width of the house. A broad door of brass fronting the garden stood partly opened, and the chemist pushed it wide and ushered in his friends. They found themselves now in a triangular hallway or lobby with an open arch in both its other sides, giving a passage into rooms beyond. Through one of these archways, the chemist led them into what evidently was the main living room of the dwelling. It was a high-ceilinged room, nearly triangular in shape, thirty feet possibly at its greatest width. In one wall were set several silvery-curtained windows opening out onto the lake. On the other side was a broad fireplace and hearth, with another archway beside it leading farther into the house. The walls of the room were lined with small gray tiles. The floor was also tiled with gray and white, set in design. On the floor were spread several large rugs, apparently made of grass or fiber. The walls were bare except between the windows, where two long, narrow, heavily embroidered strips of golden cloth were hanging. In the center of the room stood a circular stone table, its top a highly polished black slab of stone. The table was set now for a meal, with golden metal dishes, huge metal goblets of a light color, and beautifully wrought table utensils, also of gold. Around the table were several small chairs made of wicker. In the seat of each lay a padded fiber cushion, and over the back was hung a small piece of embroidered cloth. With the exception of these chairs and table, the room was practically devoid of furniture. Against one wall was a smaller table of stone, with a few miscellaneous objects on its top, and under each window stood a small white stone bench. A fire glowed in the fireplace grate, a fire that burned without flame. On the hearth before it, reclining on a large silvery cushion, was a woman holding in her hands a small stringed instrument like a tiny harp or lyre. When the men entered the room, she laid her instrument aside and rose to her feet. As she stood there for an instant, expectant, with the light of welcome in her eyes, the three strangers beheld what to them seemed the most perfect vision of feminine loveliness they had ever seen. The woman's age at first glance was indeterminate. By her face, her long, slender, yet well-rounded neck, and the slim curves of her girlish figure, she might have been hardly more than twenty. Yet in her bearing there was that indefinable poise and dignity that bespoke the more mature, older woman. She was about five feet tall, with a slender, 
almost fragile yet perfectly rounded body. Her dress consisted of a single flowing garment of light blue silk reaching from the shoulders to just above her knees. It was girdled at the waist by a thick golden cord that hung with golden tasseled pendants at her side. A narrower golden cord crossed her breast and shoulders. Her arms, legs, and shoulders were bare. Her skin was smooth as satin, milky white, and suffused with the delicate tints of many colors. Her hair was thick and very black. It was twisted into two tresses that fell forward over each shoulder, nearly to her waist, and ended with a little silver ribbon and tassel tied near the bottom. Her face was a delicate oval. Her lips were full and of a color for which in English there is no name. It would have been read, doubtless, by sunlight in the world above, but here in this silver light of phosphorescence the color red as we see it was impossible. Her nose was small, of Grecian type. Her slate-gray eyes were rather large, very slightly upturned at the corners, giving just a touch of the look of our women of the Orient. Her lashes were long and very black. In conversation, she lowered them at times with a charming combination of feminine humility and a touch of coquetry. Her gaze from under them had an often peculiar look of melting softness, yet always it was direct and honest. Such was the woman who quietly stood beside her hearth, waiting to welcome these strange guests from another world. As the men entered through the archway, the boy Lotto pushed quickly past them in his eagerness to get ahead, and, rushing across the room, threw himself into the woman's arms, crying happily, Mita, Mita. The woman kissed him affectionately. Then, before she had time to speak, the boy pulled her forward, holding her tightly by one hand. This is my mother, he said, with a pretty little gesture. Her name is Lilda. The woman loosened herself from his grasp with a smile of amusement, and, native fashion, bowed low with her hands to her forehead. "'My husband's friends are welcome,' she said simply. Her voice was soft and musical. She spoke English perfectly, with an intonation of which the most cultured woman might be proud, but with a foreign accent much more noticeable than that of her son. A very long time we have been waiting for you, she added, and then, as an afterthought, she impulsively offered them her hand in their own manner. The chemist kissed his wife quietly. In spite of the presence of strangers, for a moment she dropped her reserve, her arms went up around his neck, and she clung to him an instant. Gently putting her down, the chemist turned to his friends. I think Lilda has supper waiting, he said. Then as he looked at their torn woolen suits that once were white and the ragged shoes upon their feet, he added with a smile, but I think I can make you much more comfortable first. He led them up a broad, curving flight of stone steps to a room above, where they found a shallow pool of water sunk below the level of the floor. Here he left them to bathe, getting them, meanwhile, robes similar to his own, with which to replace their own soiled garments. In a little while, much refreshed, they descended to the room below, where Lilda 
had supper ready upon the table waiting for them. Only a little while ago my father and Aura left, said Lilda, as they sat down to eat. Lilda's younger sister, the chemist explained, she lives with her father here in Arite. The very young man parted his lips to speak. Then, with heightened color in his cheeks, he closed them again. They were deftly served at supper by a little native girl who was dressed in a short tunic reaching from waist to knees, with circular discs of gold covering her breasts. There was cooked meat for the meal, a white starchy form of vegetable somewhat resembling a potato, a number of delicious fruits of unfamiliar variety, and for drink the juice of a fruit that tasted more like cider than anything they could name. At the table, Lotto perched himself beside the very young man, for whom he seemed to have taken a sudden fancy. "'I like you,' he said suddenly, during a lull in the talk. "'I like you, too,' answered the very young man. "'Aura is very beautiful. You'll like her.' "'I'm sure I will.' the very young man agreed soberly. "'What's your name?' persisted the boy. "'My name's Jack, and I'm glad you like me. I think we're friends, don't you?' And so they became firm friends, and, as far as circumstances would permit, inseparable companions. Lilda presided over the supper with the charming grace of a competent hostess. She spoke seldom, Yet when the conversation turned to the great world above in which her husband was born, she questioned intelligently and with eager interest. Evidently, she had a considerable knowledge of the subject, but with an almost childish, insatiable curiosity, she sought from her guests more intimate details of the world they lived in. When in lighter vein their talk ran into comments upon the social life of their own world, Lilda's ready wit combined with her ingenuous simplicity, put to them many questions which made the giving of an understandable answer sometimes amusingly difficult. When the meal was over, the three travelers found themselves very sleepy, and all of them were glad when the chemist suggested that they retire almost immediately. He led them again to the upper story, into the bedroom they were to occupy. There, on the low bedsteads, Soft with many quilted coverings, they passed the remainder of the time of sleep in dreamless slumber, utterly worn out by their journey, nor guessing what the morning would bring forth. End of chapter 19